because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, this is Earth Day week. The biggest topic on Earth Day is climate, and I'm very excited for the guest I have today. So uh, background, I first read an article by this guy in 2014 in the Wall Street Journal, and his name is Steve Koonin. He's a very well-respected physicist. He actually worked in the Obama administration. He's definitely not a political activist, an industry person. And I was shocked by how accurately I thought he summarized the state of what's actually known and not known about climate science. And uh, I'd come to many of the same conclusions that I had, although from a much more sophisticated uh, perspective. And I was really surprised that the media even allowed this guy to speak. And then late, recently I learned that he actually has a new book called Unsettled, which I've been devouring uh, recently and I think is, uh, is excellent. So, and I think this is gonna be, I mean, it was already number two on Amazon. I think this book is gonna be huge because it's, it's by an extremely well-respected person who doesn't have a whole lot of incentives to distort things. I think it accurately portrays the state of the science. And just to give you two sentences that I think are very revealing that I agree with. One is humans exert a growing but physically small warming influence on the climate. And two is the net economic impact of human-induced climate change will be minimal through at least the end of this century. Now, if these are true, then the whole focus on climate as an existential threat, we should sacrifice our current fossil fuel civilization, those completely come into uh, question. So I thought I'd bring on Steve to talk about his book, his background, and how he came to these conclusions. So Steve Koonin, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be talking with you. So let's get into your background. What is your scientific background? And in particular, I want to know, how was it useful for you when you under, undertook to understand the state of climate science? So, you know, uh, my background uh, comes in several different threads that have come together to let me write this book, Unsettled. First, I'm a physicist and um, focused on uh, theoretical physics from my undergraduate and graduate days at Caltech and then MIT. Uh, and I've had great pleasure doing what physicists do, which is to poke your nose into other people's business. Uh, climate, human genome project, national security matters. Second, I'm an educator. Uh, I first was in a university classroom lecturing about 50 years ago at Caltech to undergrads. And one of my greatest joys is to see people's eyes light up when you get them to understand something. I also have a lot of experience providing science and technology advice to decision makers in the private sector when I was chief scientist for BP, in the government, and uh, for many years in a group called Jason, which advises the federal government on many different science and technology matters. And I also know something about energy technologies. I helped the government in 2011 when I was in the Obama energy department write the first plan for what energy technologies it should be investing in. Um, when I was in BP, I helped them figure out what they should be doing in terms of research and development. And, and so all these things have come together in this book to uh, let me give what I think is a very clear, complete and accessible discussion of exactly what we know and what we don't know about climate science. My first um, epiphany, if you like, or set of doubts about the science began in 2014 when I was asked to uh, help rewrite a statement 
by the American Physical Society, which is the organization representing 50,000 physicists worldwide, helped them rewrite their statement on climate science and climate change. And I got a group of climate experts together, some physicists who were on the panel, and we sat and talked for a day, presentations, back and forth. It's all been recorded in a transcript, which is up there on the web if you care to find it. And I started to realize that the science was nowhere near as solid as I had thought from uh, what I had understood before. And so I started speaking out in 2014, uh, the culmination of six years of further research, talking with people writing uh, is now this book, Unsettled, which will be published on May 4th. So with that, so I didn't know actually that the transcript of that was available. I, I mean, I remember when this, when the kind of revisiting of the statement was undertaken, because there was this, to me, infamous, uh, incontrovertible statement that was right. made. Correct. Um, and then I knew that they were revisiting it and actually bringing in a wide variety of people. Were you tasked with leading that? What was your official role? Well, well I was tasked with um, chairing a small committee that uh, of five other physicists uh, who would draft a statement and then send it up to the leadership for consideration. And somewhat controversially, my sense was, well, heck, we're physicists. There's no reason we should simply rubber stamp uh, <laughs> the IPCC report that had just come out in 2013. Um, and so I said, well, why don't we dig a little more deeply into the science and get this workshop together and show the physicists just how strong or not the scientific case was. And there was a lot of concern when I proposed doing that and eventually uh, got permission to do it. Uh, so, so that's what we did. That's great. I mean, I like the idea of, of appealing. It's not, I mean, the deserved confidence of physicists in methods. I mean, if you look at, you know, one thing about just different fields called science, like blank science, I mean, is that they have vastly different track records in terms of what they've actually accomplished and vastly different standards of validation. And I think Peter Thiel pointed out that the things that begin with blank science tend to have the worst uh, track records, whereas things <laughs> like physics and chemistry. So yeah. if you think of physics and what's been achieved in physics in terms of understanding and predictive ability, you know, it's an absolutely astounding thing. Yeah. Uh, climate yeah. science does not have any kind of track record like that. Yeah. If you look at the public spokesman, I mean, the, which I don't think reflect all the scientists, but the public spokesman, I think have a demonstrably very wrong uh, yeah. track record. So I'm glad you undertook to review so, them. So, so to be fair to the climate scientists, they're dealing with a very hard problem and we can get into exactly why it's hard uh, in a while. But, you know, we as physicists tend to be data-driven, fact-driven, uh, working from principles and understanding just how good or how bad models can be in any particular situation. We tend to ask very simple, but often very difficult questions when we look into a new subject. And I've had great fun doing that uh, um, in biology uh, about, let's see, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, at the request of the Department of Energy in dirty bombs, uh, various other national security issues. You tend to go in and, and you learn about a subject and you start asking dumb questions, eventually putting together a kind of synthetic picture for yourself. I want to just follow up on this idea that they're, they are dealing with a very complex thing. 
I think that's also true, though, of a lot of these other fields that are blank science, like economic science. <laughs> and I think it lends itself to a lot of distortion. I think, A, because people tend to want confidence in the future, so they like certainty. And then the less certainty there is, the more you can have people who are overly confident who make these definitive predictions. And I think that's why we get the public spokesmen of not just um not just uh, climate science, but a lot of environmental science, they have this track record for decades and decades and decades, Paul Ehrlich being the most notorious, where they just predict these things that are totally wrong. And you can say, oh, well, it's such a complex system to know what'll happen. That's true. But if it's a complex system and you don't have sufficient knowledge to predict it, the better people will say that, but the worse people will often get media attention. Yeah, of course. And, and of course, it is in some ways, these most complex systems that are of greatest societal interest. Uh, and so you get a lot of noise and a lot of uncertainty in the discussions, even if it's sometimes not acknowledged. You know, you can go in a hierarchy. I mean, if you look at mathematics, physics, chemistry, uh, we understand these things very well, in large part because we can do experiments and we can reduce our understanding to a couple of basic principles. Biology is getting like that. It didn't used to be. And I used to have great arguments back in the 1990s with my then boss, David Baltimore, a Nobel Prize winning uh, biologist, about whether there in fact was that kind of understanding of biology. And I think we're getting there and we see that in the great prowess we've had in, in rapidly formulating vaccines for, for COVID. But then you get further on where you really can't do integrated experiments, uh, geology, astronomy, uh, and, and climate science. And, and so that's certainly one deficiency in those sciences. Another is that the climate system is difficult to observe. We need precise observations over many decades. The oceans are hard to understand. There's behavior going on at all scales that we can't clearly separate from one another. So it's a very difficult problem. Um, I want to go into, yeah, so I think it is important that it's not just because it's often portrayed as, oh, it's physics, we're destroying the planet, like that kind of, yeah. this is a physics. So, but I think, you know, there are some physics that we know that are part of the system. And I think one point you make really well is how you describe greenhouse gases. And in particular, I like the metaphor of insulation. And I like the idea of intercepting rather than trapping heat. So could you elaborate on how to understand greenhouse gases? Sure. So, so the, the Earth's temperature broadly is set by a balance between the sunlight energy that it absorbs, about 70% 70, uh, 70 of the sunlight that comes in and gets absorbed by the Earth, uh, and the heat energy that it radiates. Clearly, if it keeps absorbing the sunlight, it's going to get hotter and hotter, and that doesn't happen. And the reason is that it radiates heat in the form of infrared radiation back into space. And the balance between those two, when they're precisely equal or almost precisely equal, is what sets the temperature of the planet. If there were no atmosphere, the heat would go right back out into space and the temperature of the planet would be a lot colder than we actually observe it to be. And the reason that it is the temperature it is, is because some of that heat, actually most of it, gets intercepted by the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and retarded on its way out. So it gets absorbed, emitted, absorbed, emitted, and so on. And some of that intercepted heat finds its way back to the earth and makes it warmer than it would have been otherwise uh, by about 30 degrees centigrade, uh, a little bit more, 30 something degrees centigrade, warmer than it would have been otherwise. 
And that's how the greenhouse gas, uh, greenhouse effect works. The most important greenhouse gas is a natural one. It's water vapor. It's responsible for the bulk of the greenhouse gas effect. But the natural carbon dioxide and the human produced carbon dioxide that we're adding, uh, those things boost the greenhouse gas effect a little bit uh, and produce the temperature that we have now. Yeah, I find it I like the idea of intercepting, you know, you make the point that it's it's often called trapping and that definitely has the idea of, oh, we're going to get hotter and hotter. I often think of it as like it's slowing the release. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of it. retarding, slowing, whatever. And, and it's just like, again, the insulation that uh, your jacket might provide in intercepting your body heat to keep you warmer in cold weather. Um, another point that you make, I think I'm getting this right, is the point that we, we're talking about global warming but warming isn't uniform, right? It's more in colder regions and colder times. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in fact, we observe that, that the uh, area toward the poles, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, is warming more rapidly than the area uh, around the equator. Uh, and also the winters are warming more than the summers on average. In general, the cold temperatures are getting warmer faster than the higher temperatures are. And one can more or less understand that. Can you elaborate on what, what the, what's the more or less understanding of that? Well, you know, a big factor in the Arctic is um, the fact that we're losing ice and that um, decreases the reflectivity in the Arctic and lets it absorb more sunlight. And so it gets warmer faster. And, and also as you warm the planet up, the heat naturally will flow from the warmer parts to the colder parts and the colder parts kind of just have more headroom to be emitting heat. So they're going to get warmer. One point that you raise is the issue of, of albedo and how that makes a much bigger difference. So you talk about the difference between a 0 0.30 and 0 0.31 albedo can offset like a doubling of CO2. Can you talk about that? Yeah. yeah so, so the, I think the, the higher level point first before we get to the albedo is that the changes that we're concerned with in the temperature are very small on a physical scale. So the average temperature of the earth is about 55 Fahrenheit. If you translate that into the temperature scale that's meaningful for how, emit, how heat gets emitted, uh, it is the Kelvin scale, which has zero and absolute zero. And that temperature is just about 300, well, it's 288 average temperature over the Earth. And so when we talk about a one degree Celsius rise or a two degree Celsius rise, that's one out of 288 or about one out of 300 or about 0.3%. And so we might expect that changes in the properties of the climate system at the fraction of a percent level are what we're concerned about. And so, for example, we know that the human effects right now amount to just about half a percent perturbation on the natural flows of energy in the climate system. Another way in which we can perturb the um, climate system is by changes in the albedo, for example, through the aerosols that we are emitting into the lower atmosphere. Right now, the average albedo, the reflectivity of the planet is about 0.30. And I've had great fun over the last 20, is it 20 years? Maybe almost, yeah, 20 years. Um, trying to measure the Earth's albedo by watching the moon 
that's a whole other kind of fun science story. But let's just, we now know the albedo is, is 0 0.30, largely from satellite observations. But if that albedo were 0.31 instead of 0 0.30, it would counteract, it would make the Earth a little bit shinier, would mean it would absorb a little bit less sunlight, and therefore it would counteract the warming effect of CO2 in the large. And it just needs to be 0.31. And to, how, to what, 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 like, what's the scale of what would be needed to do that? Well, you know, now we get into geoengineering and people talk about that. Um, and we could, we could do that. Uh, as humans, it is perfectly possible to do it. In fact, it might be possible for a wealthy individual to do it. What you would do is be injecting uh, sulfur particles, hydrogen sulfate, uh, into the atmosphere, into the upper atmosphere, creating a haze just like when a big volcano goes off and cools the planet for a couple of years. Uh, and we could do that artificially. Um, I'm not advocating that we do that. I think we need to understand what the upsides and more importantly, the risks would be of doing that, but um, it is possible to do that. Is there, are there things you could do on the surface of the earth? Sure, people talk about creating micro bubbles on the um, uh, surface of the ocean, other ways of inducing low clouds by seeding low clouds. Uh, unfortunately, I think painting roofs white would not have much effect at a global level, but it might help keep the cities a bit cooler. So uh, there are a variety of ways to geoengineer or manage solar radiation, as it's called. Um, as I said, I think it's important to understand what could and could not be done, but I'm in no way advocating for their deployment at this time. Gotcha. All right, I want to go in a little bit of depth into I think a major distortion that you've explained quite well. And so I'm going to just read from the National Climate Assessment, and then we'll talk about this. There have been marked changes in temperature extremes across the contiguous United States. The number of high temperature records set in the past two decades far exceeds the number of low temperature records. And we don't have a figure in front of us, but you just imagine that you see these little bars and on, you know, 1930, 1940, they're kind of low. And then you go to the recent decades and it's, it's up like this. And you think, oh, my. and so you read, the average person will read this. Now, the, you might see the wording seems a little suspicious, like high temperature records, why are you using that? But it de definitely seems like it's getting super hot. Like that's the takeaway. So what is going on? with this, like what's, what, yeah, what's, what's the reality and then what's being distorted? Yeah, so, so this is a, an episode or a section that appeared in the US government's National Climate Assessment Volume 1 called the Climate Science Special Report that was issued in 2017. And it is a once every four year assessment of the state of climate science issued by the US government, in fact, mandated by the Congress. And when this report came out in 2017, I and a number of other people read it very carefully. And we noticed, as you said, something that looks really peculiar, that they show you a ratio of the number of record daily highs to the number of record daily lows over about 100 years, no, uh, about 100 years, I guess. Um, and uh, as you said, looks like nothing's very much is happening until 1950 or 1960, and then it explodes. And certainly there are uh, more record highs than record lows. But for a lot of us who read it, that was a very peculiar way of displaying the data. 
And so I started to dig into it a bit more deeply and realized, first of all, the notion that record highs were getting higher or more common was contradictory with other graphs that had appeared in the report, which showed that there no change in heat waves over the last, or the average, no change in heat waves since the beginning of the 20th century. And similarly, the average record high temperature across the country hadn't increased since 1960. Yet nevertheless, they're showing this very scary graph that um, zooms upward in the last 50 years. Um, and so I turned back to the original papers that were cited, and I discovered that the way they calculate record highs and record lows actually makes both of them go down, the numbers of record highs and record lows go down dramatically, having nothing to do at all with the climate, but simply from the statistics uh, properties of the way they calculate uh, the record highs and record lows. So first of all, by their definition, neither record highs nor record lows are increasing, they're both going down. And then secondly, when you again understand the method in a bit more detail, you realize it's guaranteed to produce a long period of quiescence and then suddenly go wild or go increasingly wild as you get to the end of the record. And so this, this is a swindle, okay? Um, it is demonstrably misleading. It would have been much more natural to present the numbers of record highs and record lows separately on the same graph, but not the ratio. And what it would have shown is just what I said, they're both going down, except the number of record lows is going down faster than the number of record highs is going down. And so the ratio goes up in recent years. I got incensed enough that uh, I called up a friend, John Christie, who is an expert at meteorological data, the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And I said, John, let's uh, redo the analysis using a proper definition of record high and record low. He did that. And when in fact you uh, look at that analysis, the results, what you discover is what we've already talked about actually, that the warm temperatures, the record high temperatures have not increased at all over the last 70 or 80 years. In, in the US at in least. The US. This is just the continental US, yes. But the record cold temperatures have been going down in number with succeeding years. And so the ratio goes up. Um, so a proper statement is that there haven't been many changes at all in the high temperatures and the cold nights and winters are getting somewhat warmer. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, and as you mentioned, like some of the, the true stuff is in the report, but it's much more buried. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, this, this temperature record uh, incident or uh, episode, it's got an interesting coda on it. So, of course, the, the way the reports are prepared is that a draft is prepared by the government. It's sent to a panel of the National Academies for independent review, who then comment and send back comments to the government and say, you know, this isn't right, please fix this and so on. And in fact, this particular, um, the fact that a lot of the text in the draft report talked about record high, talked about extreme heat, but the graphs didn't show it, um, was commented on by the committee and it was sent back to the government. And then the government inserted this bogus figure into the report 
effectively, I believe, bypassing the committee. They probably had to, otherwise the committee would have commented on it again. So, you know, the notion that these reports are valid because they're peer reviewed by thousands of scientists, et cetera, et cetera. It's just not right because you find these misrepresentations, these errors in them. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm suspicious of just this whole idea of like record highs and record. I mean, the main thing people are actually concerned about is they think that like there's just an incredible increase in heat waves that is intolerable. And it's just inconvenient that at least in the US, that's not true. And so, I mean, like I consider, it's kind of like if you're dealing with a person, like if a person really just tells you one giant lie or really tries to defraud you, that says something about the character of the person, particularly if it's something that's taking place over a long period of time. It's not just, oh, they were uncomfortable for a minute, so they said something false. It's like, no, this is a report that's prepared over years. So it's being manufactured. People have to know this. So what do you what do you take about the character of the national climate assessment from this? So, so you know, first of all, there are several different players in this. There are the researchers in the trenches, if you like. And when you sit down and talk to them and you read the papers that they write in the research journals, it's pretty credible and rigorous. I mean, yes, there are uncertainties and all of that. And, but they talk about it like ordinary scientists do. But when you get to some of the public figures, public scientists who are distorting um, or representing the science and are in fact distorting it, then you run into problems. The National Climate Assessment alleges to be an objective, independent assessment of the state of science. But as you look into it deeply, and I show this in the book in more than a few instances, it's a document that is written to persuade rather than inform. And that's okay if it says that, but if it says it's science, it is certainly misrepresenting itself. I'm curious how, what you're gonna say about this. What, what's your view of the IPCC uh, overall? Cause there's, I mean, just to put my cards on the table, I think there are at least three camps. So one, or maybe four. One is like the IPCC is like this divine, well, they wouldn't call it divine, but like the ultimate scientific rigorous thing that is just tells the whole truth. Another thing is that the, and, and that it's catastrophic. Then there's a lot of people who are kind of similar to me, although I disagree with them on this. So the IPC is really, really rigorous scientifically, but its findings are just distorted by the media. Uh, then my view is that many of the scientists whose work is being taken by the IPCC are quite good, but I regard the IPCC as actually a political and religious organization that I think is conceived in a pretty bad way. Uh, and then there are people who just think it's all a hoax, which I don't believe at yeah. all. Um, so I'm curious where you, where you stand in terms yeah, of the IPCC. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle. I think, well, first of all, of course, there are several different components to the IPCC. There is the detailed report or reports mm-hmm. that run to thousands of pages. Right. And when you read them, they're not bad, okay? Um, at least the working group one, which is the physical science. I think it's not bad. I think they do a pretty honest job. I have complaints about some of the things they do we can talk about in terms of process and presentation, but by and large, it's pretty good. And in fact, a lot of the material in the book is simply lifting quotes of the report that are buried in the back of the report, so to speak, right. uh, and, and surfacing them for people to see. 
Um, then you get to the summaries for policymakers, which is all, in fact, anybody reads of the report if they read it at all, because you've got to be a pretty expert person to read the summaries. And they are- You mean to read the reports? To, uh, yes, to read the reports, I think you really have to be an expert to understand them. Or you've got to spend a lot of time and have a good scientific background. Um, and when you read the summary for policymakers, they often mislead by omission, um, by distortion, um, and they are largely political documents, I think. Doesn't mean everything is wrong, but it means they don't tell the whole story. You know, um, and, and so that's what I think about the IPCC uh, and those summaries for policymakers and then the subsequent media coverage are, have a heavy hand of government and activists as opposed to the true scientists in the trenches. And one of the things you'll discover if you read the transcript of that American Physical Society workshop is that the working scientists are often embarrassed by the way the IPCC winds up describing uh, the state of the science. And so that raises the question of sort of your role in this, because I, you know, there's this phenomenon of you talk to people behind the scenes and, and they often find the public presentation embarrassing, yet it's very rare for people to stand up uh, against it, you know, and say, hey, there's something wrong here. And certainly rare to present it as objectively as you are coming from a high position of scientific standing. So I'm curious, let's start with 2014. What kind of reception did you get positive and negative when you wrote that article in the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, I, I mean, there were, I don't know, more than 2000 online comments. I would say the great majority of them were supportive. And thank you for uh, A, uh, making things clearer for us and, and B, speaking out the way in which you did. Um, there were other folks in the community who, uh, in the science community, who said, how could you write such an article in a widely disseminated uh, journal or newspaper? How, how could you be so public about the problems that we face in the science? Um, other people, of course, called me an idiot and I don't know what I'm doing. What, 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 what was the second one? So what's the basis of why are they asking you? Like, what's their, what's their issue with you writing it uh, in the Wall Street Journal and criticizing some of the, or raising I, some I, of the challenges? I, I think that, um, I, you know, it's hard to get into people's heads, but I think um, a lot of scientists in the field um, feel that they need to induce action. So they have become activists rather than, uh, and lost some of their objectivity. And so they're uncomfortable with people talking about the really true state of the science. In the book, I have been very careful to base almost all of it on what's in the official assessment reports or since some of them are a little old, the subsequent peer-reviewed literature. And so, you know, this is, the book is largely not Steve talking. This is the consensus science. And so I think people who support the science, as this administration says it does, and other folks who believe in the science, are gonna have a hard time disagreeing with some of the things that are in the book, because it's not Steve, it's what's in the reports. They just haven't read the reports. I, I like to say, you know, I like to quote a line from The Princess Bride, uh, whereas you may remember Inigo Montoya um, 
upon hearing Frizzini keep using the word inconceivable, he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And so in fact, I would say, I do not think the science says what you think it says. And a lot of the book is, is just about exposing that, uh, those facets of the consensus science. I mean, one of the big issues I have with the IPCC, so I mean, I'm coming at this mostly from the energy end of things. I mean, I'm interested in climate as a side effect of fossil fuels, but my focus is, I think fossil fuels are fundamental to the way of life we have today. And they're, and I think the energy they provide, that level of energy is needed by billions of people. And so like, I'm coming at it from that perspective. And, you know, one thing I really object to about the IPCC, like if you look at their, even in, in the in-depth reports, like this, um, the special report on 1.5 degrees, that was 2018 or 2019, like you look at their summary of the state of the world and it, and it's basically like the world is not a very good place. It's, it's a very negative state of the world. And yet the state of the world is amazing in terms of things like reduced extreme poverty. And, and the other thing that they don't mention at all, certainly in that report, and I don't even think it's mentioned in any of, I haven't seen it in all of the details of AR5, not that I've read all of it, but I haven't found it is I don't see any mention that climate related disaster deaths have been rapidly declining. And I don't know how you could have possibly an accurate portrayal of the state of the world and climate if you don't acknowledge A, how important energy is, but then B, climate-related deaths are declining, which shows something about how amazingly adaptive we are. What's your take on this? Yeah, uh, so look, um, uh, people's well-being is deeply tied up with the availability of reliable and inexpensive energy. And we've got 40% of the people on the globe right now who do not have adequate energy and the population is going to grow a little bit as well. And so both the growing population and the need of those people to develop are going to drive energy demand up strongly. And nobody has got a good answer of how are you going to get carbon free energy to those people? Who's going to pay for it? And there is no good answer right now other than that, well, we'll develop the technologies to do that. Uh, and well, maybe so, but the technologies are not there right now to do that. Um, and, and so there's a balancing against rather vague and uncertain climate impacts uh, and the need for these people to have energy. And in fact, for the developed world to continue to uh, develop and, and do the things that we can do, mobility, mobility, heat, light, information technologies, all of these depend upon uh, abundant, reliable, relatively inexpensive energy. And right now, fossil fuels make up 80% of the world's energy supply right now. Um, there may be instances where wind and solar are cheaper but they cannot be brought to scale and remain cheap like that because of reliability issues. And so I think for the next many decades, it's gonna be fossil fuels, whether the world wants to continue that or not. I think you're just gonna to have to have that to satisfy the energy needs of the planet. I mean, you mentioned you know, vague and uncertain climate impacts, but you know, when we look at like a hundred years ago, say so you look at the 1930s, in the 1930s, you have years where millions of people die of climate disasters. That's you know adjusted for population. That's 10 million people today. There's nothing resembling that. You know, any given year, it's it's in the thousands or tens of thousands at the most, uh, and low tens of thousands actually. So, I I mean I think of it as even like we are artificially safe from climate, and we can master an unbelievable 
variety of climates. So if what you're saying is, yeah, we have a, a growing but small impact, I don't see any possibility of even climate catastrophe, let alone climate cataclysm for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the notion of tipping points and catastrophes uh, has receded from the scientific discussion. There's not I mean, not from done. the portrayal of it. Well, no. And, and, you know, this big disconnect is a big part of the problem. Um, you know, if you look at the economic impact, and it's right there in the assessment reports, I've got a chapter about it in the book, warming of five degrees centigrade, okay, which is like three times, four times the Paris uh, guardrail that has been set, is anticipated to have a minimal economic impact on either the US or the global economy overall, minimal. And what that means is that the growth of the economy will be delayed by a couple of years by the time you get to the end of the century. And you know it's right there in black and white in the report. Well, it's a little bit obscured, it's not highlighted, but in fact, you know, it's astounding when you read that, you wonder how can people keep talking about a climate crisis or climate catastrophe? Yeah, I mean, my so Bjorn Lomborg has publicized this a lot, and I generally agree. But like looking at the details of it, I have two concerns. So one is they have something like, oh, it's 2.2% or whatever the number is. But then there's a lot of like weasel words around, we're not sure, it could be a lot greater and stuff. And then what you're seeing, and this is happening right now, more so than ever, I think is climate economists, particularly Nordhaus and Richard Toll, are being challenged. And people are saying like, hey, you're not properly accounting. And I think the reason is they wanted climate economics to give them a pseudoscientific reason to say the world is going to end. And then the mainstream climate economists failed to deliver on that. They just said, yeah, there's going to be some issues, but we'll adapt. And they, they don't like, the catastrophists don't like that. So now, now they're basically saying, oh, we, we can't even use climate economics. It's going to be a catastrophe. And because of the IPCC and because it's, I think it's so distorted, I wouldn't be at all surprised if in subsequent ones they say, oh, yeah, no, it's actually going to be a total catastrophe. What's yeah. your read on that? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, again, this is an even harder problem than climate itself. Uh, as you know, economics is called the dismal science. I like to say that climate economics is the doubly dismal science. Uh, it's really difficult not only to project the climate, but then how it will affect human society and how human society will respond to it. Um, I'm willing to acknowledge deep uncertainty in that. My beef is that the reports as published so far, based on the literature so far, show minimal impact. And Nevertheless, the public dialogue screams catastrophe. And so it's more a question for me of the fidelity of the picture that mm. gets represented to non-experts than exactly what the picture says. Yeah, I guess my, my take is I think that I think the because I think of it as a political and in, in some sense religious organization, I think the reports will continue to diminish yeah, um, in quality. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, again, to say things maybe a bit out of school, Many of the senior climate scientists think that by the time now we've gotten to the sixth assessment report, it's no longer the A-team that is preparing the reports. Uh, yeah, if there ever was the A-team preparing the reports, I think they're probably- I, I think if ago. you go back to the, the first couple, there were some pretty good people involved and they some of them got discouraged with the process. 
Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, I think there were, and they're also, yeah, the, the character of those that I've seen is quite different. And they talk about things like medieval warm period and stuff, which is not okay to talk about uh, now. So yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. I just want to ask about that because I, I, that's, I worry about, like, I worry, like, I think it's good to rely. I mean, I think it's good to say like, hey, even this organization, like, here's what the literature says, this organization is reflecting it accurately here, but I just, I know there are so many forces trying to push the IPCC to catastrophe. I mean, if you look at Guterres, the head of the UN, this guy has said like, we're waging a war on nature. Like for him, it's really a religious thing. We've waged a war on nature. And he describes it, this is almost an exact quote, as like having catastrophic economic destruction already. Like what world is he living in? The world right. has improved so much for the average person, particularly the average poor person. And he views it as we've waged a war on nature right. and the world is destroyed. Like that is a religious perspective. That is not and, an economic or and, scientific and what, perspective. What really frosts me is where is the scientific community, whether through the professional societies or through the National Academies or the UK Royal Society, standing up and saying, hey, wait a second, that just isn't right. Uh, you're wrong compared to the data or the projections and so on. You don't hear that. Now, yeah, so you know, why? You, you can't tamp down every wacky statement that the politicians or the media make, but certainly there should be some statements tampering the hysteria. And we don't see that. In why fact, not? you see quite the opposite. I think all of these organizations and to some extent individuals have to live in a politically driven world. And if they get too far out of line, uh, they can get canceled. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I have a theory that I want to run by you. So I've noticed, so again, my focus is on the energy side of things. So I'm interested in it. Um, yes, good. So, but, you know, so looking at all the different climate people I've talked to, over the years who I think are actually trying to accurately represent the state of things as they understand it. I think they're, and, and have been willing to publicly speak out about it. Almost to a man or a woman, I think they have one thing in common, which you might not expect. So some of it is they're not cancelable. Like they're people who are harder to cancel. Like you, you take, like I had a friend who was in PhD in meteorology and just left because like, there's just no way he felt like he could survive. But so people aren't cancelable, that's part of it. But the other thing I found, is that the people who speak up have an abnormally high appreciation of the value of energy. And I think the reason that is important is because if you think of energy as important, you think of these proposals to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels as potentially destructive. And then it becomes a moral issue. Whereas I think many people in science don't know about energy, don't value energy, don't. And, and so to them, it's just like, hey, what's the risk? It's kind of like this view that, hey, if we're wrong that there's a catastrophe, we'll just have cleaner air versus the energy view is, no, if you're wrong that there's a catastrophe and you outlaw fossil fuels, then we're all going to starve. Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate to have had fairly deep experience in both the climate science and the energy. Uh, I, you know, up until 2000 and for I was just a professor of theoretical physics. I was provost at Caltech. I had no sense of energy at all. And then uh, John Brown, who was CEO of BP at the time, said, come be chief scientist. And I told him, I don't know anything about practical energy. I know energy is conserved. I'm a physicist. I know the second law. But in fact, um, I didn't know anything at all. And he said, don't worry, you'll learn. 
And for a few years, I like to joke, I was the world's highest paid graduate student. Uh, I was, you know, somewhere near the top of this big organization and I was learning energy. And what you learn is, first of all, as you said, how important it is, but also just how much goes on behind the scenes, invisible to just about everybody in order to make sure that our supply of vehicle fuels, electricity, heating is economical, environmentally responsible, and uninterrupted. And I, I agree, most of the climate scientists I talk with and almost all of the academics do not have that appreciation for the other side of the issue. I mean, the, th the second thing you raised, I didn't raise, but I think is I want to highlight because it's really important is, is you said they don't understand what goes on behind the scenes. So I think there are two things. One is not getting how fundamental energy is, but the other is how difficult it is to produce with the cost effectiveness that we do today. So making it low cost, on demand, yeah. versatile, all types of machines, and then billions of people in thousands of places like that's such an achievement. And so you take, to, not, not to pick on him too much, but like you take someone like Michael Mann, who will just like say stuff like, oh yeah, of course we can easily replace fossil fuels with renewables. Like he has no concept of how many generations of millions of people it took to do what we have today, harnessing the unique properties of fossil fuels, which are naturally stored, concentrated and, and abundant, like doing it with intermittent solar and wind, like that is just such a multi-generation project if it were even viable. But so I can see your background, you really have that appreciation of the value and then the difficulty of doing it. So I teach uh, at New York University still these days. At the, in the fall, I teach a climate science course. And then in the spring, as I'm teaching now, I teach an energy course. And I try to embrace in the energy course, not only the technologies, but the economics, the business and the regulation that goes on. And these are master's level students. And it is really interesting to see their eyes light up and the understanding kick in when you explain to them some of the things you just went through of just how difficult it is, how thin the margins can be, how tough it is to bring a new technology online. And of course, dealing with solar and wind, which we talk about a lot, as well as the energy storage that's essential if the grid is going to have a high fraction of weather-dependent renewables. The, that sounds. I'm I'm amazed that students at New York University are getting that. Is that those aren't publicly available, right? No, no, no. I'm thinking about taking the lectures. There are a dozen lectures, about 350 charts, and turning them into uh, a, a book in some way. But uh, okay, I, I endorse the, that idea. That's yeah, a great yeah, idea. Yeah, thank you. Part of the problem is this is a rapidly changing uh, subject. Uh, with new technologies coming on, new regulations, and whatever I write will probably be stale in a couple of years. Nevertheless, you know, a good introduction to the real energy system, as opposed to the energy system of physicists or uh, climate scientists, would be, uh, I think, a useful thing to do. Well, I think it's very, as we wrap up, I mean, I think it's great that students at NYU have access to the, you know, the combination of the understanding the energy and then understanding the climate piece of it from someone who's in a position to know both in depth. And I think it's great that we as the public now have this. I think this, this book is really filling a gap that, that existed. And I'm, I mean, what are, what are your expectations in terms of the response? I know there will be a lot of positive response, but 
I'm really curious to see what the catastrophizers do. Right. So, so I'm waiting to see The Empire Strike Back. And, and of course, uh, nobody's really read the book yet. Uh, all the commentary you see online, almost all of it, is from people who haven't read it yet. So I would hope that people will read it and take it seriously before they start firing back at me. And as I said, most of it is drawn directly from the reports. So it's not Steve talking, but it's the consensus talking. Um, what I hope will come out of the book in part is that people will read the book and they will say, gee, I didn't realize that. For example, that there's no long-term trend in hurricanes, no detectable human impact on hurricanes over a hundred and something years. And they will might ask themselves, that's interesting. I didn't know that. How come I didn't know that? And what else am I not being told? And that they'll go ask their climate scientist friends. And maybe that's the start of a productive, but perhaps uncomfortable set of conversations. Again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something. That in the end is a values judgment, but let's at least all have an accurate, complete, undistorted picture of what the science says and what it doesn't say. Yeah, I think it's great. So besides, of course, everyone go to Amazon and or anywhere else and buy the book Unsettled. Where else? What else can people do, or where? Or where can they learn more about you or follow you? Um, gosh, you know, I'm not a big social media guy. Um, I, I don't tweet at all. I, I think you know it's not a great medium for having serious discussion. There are some videos of lectures I've given up on the web. Uh, some of my writings are available. There was a big piece in. The Wall Street Journal that was an interview and, and then five or six years ago I did a piece on the modeling but I think the book is largely self-contained and if people take the time to read it I hope it's accessible to everybody uh, they'll good, get a good sense of what I'm trying to say. Are you open I would you be open to doing debates with people if any of the prominent climate scientists say you're wrong would you debate them yeah i would love to get on a stage because again you know i think the what i would say is that you know the report says there's no long-term trend in hurricanes how come you said etc etc right well the report really distorted uh well or it says that there's no economic impact how come it says that do you not believe it it's what's there in the report i, I think that would be an interesting set of discussions but debates again are a pretty poor way of getting at scientific truth. I'd like to see them perhaps put down something in writing first and then do it. The other person I'd love to talk with is Bill Gates, who's of course written a, a book. I think Bill wrote a pretty good energy book. Um, and had I decided to expand the energy parts of Unsettled, it's kind of what I would have written, but with more technical depth. But I think Bill's discussion of the climate is um, wrong. And uh, I would relish the chance to point that out to him at some point. I hope he reads my book. I mean, what about, would you, I mean, one, so if you can meet him, that's great. Have you, have you read his whole book? I've read I'm just, it. I'm just starting it. Yeah. I haven't studied it in detail, but I've read it enough to understand yeah. it. Um, well, if you're ever interested in doing an interview about that, I'm very interested in talking about that book. Okay, so, but uh, let's put that uh, on the, the shelf to do it at some point in the future. Right now, I think I need to be talking more about my own book. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we've got, so yeah, it's a, a terrific book. 
And, uh, and I hope Bill Gates reads it. I think there's actually a good chance I'll tweet at him since I know you're not on Twitter. Right. Uh, there's a decent right. chance he'll see it and tell him to read the book. So yeah, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think you've done a great service and I hope the book continues to be successful. And I hope this podcast can help in its own way. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thanks again to Steve Coonan for joining me uh, on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed that interview. I'm really enthusiastic about this book. I think there's a lot of potential, but definitely buy it. It's called uh, Unsettled by Steve Kuhn. It'd be pretty easy to find now. I mean, who knows? Amazon might pull it. Although last time I checked, it's their number two bestseller of all books. I mean, that's crazy. I think with my own book, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, the highest I remember getting was 77. It's possible it got higher than that, but I don't think it was anywhere near number two at any point. So I think this is, you know, I've been very excited over the past year about Michael Schellenberger's book, Bjorn Lomborg's book, that I think really have made a dent in climate catastrophism. But I think Steve's book has the potential to do a lot more because he is a highly respected physicist. Uh, He is really engaging with the science in depth in a way that's hard to argue with. And I'm just super interested to see what the catastrophizers do uh, about it. I think the key is just publicizing this enough and talking about it enough so that they have to engage. And when they have to engage, I think a lot of unflattering stuff about the catastrophe position is going to come out. So that is Earth Day, the Earth Day Power Hour. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, as, a, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Make sure to follow Energy Talking Points at energytalkingpoints.com. You can, I post a lot of the talking points at Twitter, which you can follow me at twitter.com slash alexepstein. And definitely make sure to be on our mailing list, which you can sign up for at alexepsteinlist.com. Later this week, some of the, hopefully both of these will be available soon. Uh, I'm doing a live event in Phoenix or somewhere in Arizona with Patrick Moore of Greenpeace. We're going to talk about the real state of climate and climate livability. Very excited for that. This is the first event we've ever done together uh, on a stage and it's going to be recorded. I hope it's distributed widely. I'm not 100% sure about that. Uh, I am doing also a climate panel on the Rubin Report with Dave Rubin. So I did an interview with him years ago. If you search Rubin Report, Alex Epstein, it has a lot of views on YouTube. Uh, Dave's got a great channel, great audience. So I'm on, I forget who I'm on the panel with, but with a couple other people, don't know what I'm discussing yet, but I think it'll be very interesting. And I'm very eager to discuss the issue of climate uh, on Earth Day, particularly with my own focus on looking at things from a pro-human perspective and really factoring in our ability to master climate, which, as I said, this episode, I think, given that and the actual scope of possible climate impacts, I do believe that catastrophe, let alone cataclysm, is impossible, and we should focus all our efforts on empowering as many people as possible and stop sacrificing billions of people to these uh, dogmatic fears that if we impact climate, the world is going to end. Uh, have more great guests lined up in future weeks, so look forward to that. Uh, I'll be back next week with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.